So on the whole, is it good that humans exist? Do the achievements and accomplishments of humanity outweigh the cost of existence? Or might the world be better off if, let's say, there were only 4 billion people on the planet rather than the roughly 7.75 billion people alive right now? Uh, the internet tells me that we're going to hit the 8 billion mark on November 15th of this year, which seems oddly specific and confident, but we'll see. <laughs> But would we be better off if half the people on Earth simply didn't exist? We could call this perhaps the Thanos perplex, right? You may remember the, the villain of recent MCU movies sought to extinguish a random 50% of the universe's population. Not maliciously, at least on the face of it, but, but rather out of a, an altruistic desire to eliminate hunger and war and environmental devastation. That might sound like an extreme solution, but the kind of thing for fantasy movies, perhaps, but there is a certain logic, a certain appeal to the idea. Now, wouldn't it be better if there were fewer people? Isn't humanity a kind of parasitic virus in the larger ecosystem of the earth, simply consuming and reproducing until the host is left for dead? I think a lot of environmental activism seems to start with that as a premise. It's this kind of thinking that led China to adopt a one-child policy from 1980 to 2015, as they limited couples to just one child in order to, to reduce population growth. It seemed unsustainable at the time. It seems to be an unquestioned assumption of Western aid organizations that birth control is a key piece to helping to reduce global poverty. Fewer children means fewer mouths to feed, means a mother who's able to pursue gainful employment outside the home rather than being burdened with care for children. It's almost a universal rule that the more progressive, the more developed a society is, the lower its birth rate will be. Right? Large families are basically a thing of the past. And even then, given the state of the world, is it perhaps irresponsible for people to bring children into this place? To, to, to bring children to life, we're going to have to live in this world. Pandemics, social upheaval, extreme weather. Right? Do we really want to be bringing children into this world? That question was posed to a New York Times advice columnist, a prospective father, uh, asked if it was unethical to have children in this current social milieu, the, the New York Times advice columnist sympathized. He said, no one wants to be the father in Cormac McCarthy's The Road, roaming post-apocalyptic America with his son and a gun with two bullets in it, waiting for the moment it all becomes too much to bear. So would it be better if we had fewer people? Is this world such a terrible place that it'd be better not to bring people into it? And if we're tempted to answer yes to those questions, why don't we actually live that way? Why does our experience fail to match up with our logical conclusions? Why do we greet the news of a pregnancy with great joy, not horror? Why does a school shooting elicit national mourning 
rather than a celebration of the fact that those children don't have to grow up in this terrible world. It must be that there's something in us that knows what we might not be able to explain, what we might even be tempted to deny. And that is that human life is valuable. That, that a human life is a precious gift. It's something to be cherished and protected. Well, the Word of God speaks directly to those issues, giving us guidance, instruction, a firm foundation for our thinking. And so we turn this morning specifically uh, to the sixth commandment found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. You can turn there in your Bible if you'd like. You can listen as I read it. My guess is you might be able to memorize this by the end of the sermon. If you've been here recently, you know we've been walking through the book of Exodus, the story of the people of Israel and God's deliverance of them from slavery in the land of Egypt. The Lord has rescued his people. He has brought them out as they're on their way to the land that he's going to give them. Uh, the Lord meets with Israel at Mount Sinai, and through Moses, he gives them instructions on how they are to live as his people, how they're to live in light of their redemption. So these laws, these Ten Commandments and the other laws that, that come are meant to shape the life of Israel as they, as they live as God's people. And so today... We come to Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, the sixth commandment. We read this. You shall not murder. On first glance, that might seem like an obvious and easy command to understand and to keep. My guess is that you know whether or not you've murdered someone. Someone ran the numbers. Again, the internet figures these things out determined that you're probably going to walk by 11 murderers in your lifetime. So they are out there. And perhaps they're in here as well. So I, I don't want to assume that, that murder is the kind of sin that no one could commit and then come to church. Uh, let me say that if you've committed this particular sin, we are really glad you're here today. And we've got amazing news for you. I think most people probably haven't directly violated this command, but I don't want to assume that none of us have, or that, or that church isn't a place for people who have broken this commandment. But I think there are a few things that we need to pull apart in order to understand exactly what this commandment is forbid, forbidding. Uh, it seems simple on the face of it, you shall not murder, open and shut. Uh, but I do think that there's, a more, there's more beneath the surface. And so to that end, I'd like to look at four things today. So first, I want to see specifically what this commandment forbids. Second, what the commandment requires of us. Third, I want to look and see what the Lord Jesus taught about this commandment. And then finally, as we conclude, I just want to step back for a second and notice the bigger picture. So what it forbids, what it requires, what Jesus said, and the bigger picture. So first, let's see what the commandment forbids. There are only two words uh, in the Hebrew uh, version of verse 13. So we get four words in English, you shall not murder. In Hebrew, it's literally don't murder, right? It's two words, uh, the word lo, which means don't, and the word ratzach, which means to kill. That word that, that's used there in verse 13, ratzach, the Hebrew word, it's very specific. Uh, Hebrew has at least eight different words to express the idea of killing, much like English has different words uh, to express the idea, and each one has its own sort of range of meaning. Uh, this word here in verse 13, it doesn't mean to kill 
broadly or generally. Uh, This specific word has the sense of killing unlawfully or murderously. So this is a word used of uh, of murder. When one person coldly and deliberately chooses to take the life of another human being. Uh, It's also used in the Hebrew Bible uh, for what we might call voluntary manslaughter. Right When one person, much like Moses did earlier in the book of Exodus, flies into a fit of rage and kills someone else. It's also used for what we might call involuntary manslaughter, when someone's carelessness causes the death of another. It wasn't intentional, it wasn't willful, uh, but their neglect causes someone else's death. So uh, this translation, you shall not murder, it's a, it's a good one. Uh, we might say, you shall not kill unlawfully. Now, this is not a new commandment or a new idea. It's not like murder or unlawful killing has been okay up until this point. Uh, If you remember back in the book of Genesis, we saw Cain commit the first unlawful killing. Uh, There in Genesis 4, he kills his brother Abel, seemingly in a fit of jealousy, and is cursed by God as a result But the Lord in Genesis chapter 4 also makes it very clear that no one is permitted to kill Cain, uh, that he, it's not open season now on human life. In Genesis 9, after the flood, after the Lord exercises his prerogative to take human life, he tells Noah that he's permitted to eat the plants and even the animals. But he says that while humans might kill animals, they must not kill one another. So in Genesis chapter 9, the Lord says this to Noah, And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. You see, the rationale for respecting life is that human beings were specifically and uniquely created in the image of God. And therefore, every human life is sacred. It was created by God, and so it belongs to him. It was created by God, and so he alone has the authority to take it. So as a human being, you have the right, you have the authority to take the life of an animal. Not cruelly, not wantonly. But you do have that right. But God reserves for himself the right to take human life because people are made in his image. So that's the foundational principle. The image of God in people means that you cannot kill someone. You cannot take someone's life. Now, there are a few widely agreed upon circumstances where it is permissible to take a human life. There are circumstances where it does seem like the Lord permits killing, things that wouldn't fall into the category of unlawful killing, that we wouldn't consider murder. So self-defense is one example. It's permissible to take the life of someone else if they're threatening your life or the life of someone near you. Capital punishment is another one of those examples. God, in his wisdom, has seen fit to give authority to the state to take human life in certain circumstances and for certain crimes. So the Apostle Paul, many years later, makes this clear in Romans chapter 13. He says this to the church. He says, For rulers 
are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he, that is the ruler, is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. That is to say, he has the authority to take life. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So here it is permissible for a government to take a person's life in response to a crime. God has the authority to take life. And in this case, he has delegated that authority to what Paul calls his servant, the the ruler, the state. Now, this is only to say that capital punishment is not prohibited by the Sixth Commandment. It's not saying a government must use capital punishment. It's not saying that it's always wise or right to use capital punishment. It's also not saying that anything a government chooses to do is okay. The government is responsible to use its sword wisely and in accord with the principles of God. And if it doesn't, then those rulers will give an account to God. A third example of permissible killing would be war. Christians have understood that governments may need to use force to protect their citizens, to enforce justice, and that declaration of war will most likely involve taking human life. And so Christians have understood that a soldier, sort of acting on behalf of a government, taking life in the course of battle, is not breaking the Sixth Commandment, is not committing murder. All three of those things, self-defense, capital punishment, and even war, uh, are meant to preserve life. Right? Self-defense obviously preserves human life. Capital punishment is designed to remove a threat to life, right? to punish someone who has taken a life, to act as a deterrent to those who would take life. And even war, when justly conceived and executed, can serve to protect life. So certainly the defeat of the Axis powers in World War II saved more lives than were lost even on the battlefield. So even the exceptions, times when it is permissible to take human life, are designed in the big picture to protect the value of each life in God's eyes. So the sixth commandment forbids us from wrongly taking the life of anyone made in God's image. That is to say, every human being. So things like murder, manslaughter, and even suicide are all forbidden. This means that all killing that's based in injustice whether it's hatred or greed or lust for power, is absolutely forbidden. But if you think about it, that's really the story of a lot of human history, isn't it? Right, just in the previous century, you had Nazis uh, killing Jews. You had the slaughter of Armenians by the Ottoman Empire. You had the Hutu slaughtering Tutsi uh, people in Rwanda. You had the lynching of African Americans in the South in this nation. Right, you could go on and on and on. Right? I just chose four examples, but we could find a hundred where human beings at pretty much all times in all places have tended to hate and dehumanize those who are different from them. And that's allowed them then to take their life. But the Bible is very clear that every human being bears the image of God. And so we're not free to take the life of another person because of their background, their ethnicity, Human life must not be taken in service to greed or hatred or selfishness or anger. 
Now, it might be tempting to think of that as a command that's for out there, for other places and other times when violence and ethnic hatred were acceptable. But if we're being honest, America has its own socially acceptable, even cherished forms of taking life. Perhaps the most obvious and prime example is abortion. Right? The way the Bible speaks of God's relationship to human life in the womb makes it clear that an unborn child is worthy of being protected by the sixth commandment. So in Psalm 139, King David praises the Lord for all of his work, going all the way back to his mother's womb. He says in Psalm 139, verse 13, speaking to the Lord, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Right, David writes there of his life as, as well underway while he was in his mother's womb. And as a result, Christians have understood that a child is made in the image of God even before that child is born. So Tertullian, all the way back in the second century, a leader of the early church, he addressed this issue by saying that something in the process of becoming a human being is already a human being. John Calvin, the French reformer, wrote this. He said, the fetus though enclosed in the womb of its mother, is already a human being. And it is a monstrous crime to rob it of the life which it has not yet begun to enjoy. If it seems more horrible to kill a man in his own house than a field, because a man's house is his, is his place of most secure refuge, it ought surely to be deemed more atrocious to destroy a fetus in the womb before it has come to light. So the, the modern Christian opposition to abortion is nothing new. This has been the understanding of the church, really of, of even uh, Jewish believers before the coming of Christ, because the scriptures are so clear uh, that God is the author of life, and we have no right to take it. An unborn child is made in God's image. But I think in order to make abortion more widely acceptable, what we've had to do as a society is to deny that truth. Right, history demonstrates clearly to us the best way to get a society to permit and even celebrate and embrace violence and cruelty is to dehumanize the victim. If I can convince you that this person that we're killing isn't really a human being, then my conscience is clear and your conscience is clear and we can move ahead. So again, this was Hitler's playbook, right? As he consistently and constantly referred to Jewish people as rats, until it suddenly began to take root in the German consciousness that, yeah, these aren't even people. The slave owners in America had to convince themselves that Africans were a different race, descended from a different group of people, a lesser kind of human being. And friends, in the same way, the only way Western society can justify abortion is to decide that somehow it is the act of being born that, that bestows on someone the dignity of being a human being. It's no coincidence many of the advocates of abortion 
in the early 1900s were also proponents of eugenics. Right? Abortion was often advocated as a way to keep poor and ethnically undesirable people from having children. And really, though no one would admit it, it that same principle carries on today. Uh, women of color have abortions at a rate that's four to five times greater than white women. You can walk down the streets of some poor neighborhoods, places that have been designated and lamented as food deserts because there's no grocery stores. There's no place to buy healthy food. But what you will see in those communities is a brand new shiny abortion clinic. Racism and abortion go together perfectly because both deny the image of God in someone. Both look at another human being and say, you're not worthy of being alive. They decide that a certain kind of person isn't really human. And so both are completely unacceptable for Christians, and both are forbidden by the Sixth Commandment. It's also worth mentioning the Sixth Commandment should be understood to forbid the practice of euthanasia. Increasingly, our culture is becoming comfortable with the idea of, of killing the elderly and the infirm, or at least providing everything they need uh, for them to take their own life. During World War II, uh, doctors in the Netherlands heroically resisted orders that were given by their Nazi occupiers to refuse care to the elderly and the infirm so that they would die and decrease the drain on the population. And so it was a bitter irony in 2001 when the Netherlands became the first nation to pass a law permitting doctor-assisted suicide. As one social commentator noted, it took one generation for a war crime to become an act of compassion. The idea behind euthanasia is that if you're not living a full and vibrant life, if you can no longer do the things you used to do, if you're suffering terribly, if you're no longer productive, then you might as well die. But friends, people who are ill and people who are suffering terribly are still made in the image of God, still worthy of our respect and honor and care, even if they can't produce anything for society. God alone is the Lord of life. He reserves for himself the right to determine when someone dies. So that's not to say that it's wrong to make the, the difficult decision to take someone off life support. Right? There, there's a clear moral difference between killing someone who is able to live right, that's doctor-assisted suicide, and removing the support that's keeping someone from dying, right, one is usurping God's role, the other is stepping back and allowing God to take over. I think the key thing for us in all circumstances is to be aware of the danger of devaluing human life, of saying that one kind of person isn't fit to live because of their race or age or health. Human beings are made in God's image, and the sixth commandment protects them. So that's what the commandment forbids, the, the, the wrongful taking of human life. Uh, let's look briefly at what it requires of us. So we've seen what not to do, but apart from refraining from taking life, what must we do? Well, the answer seems to be that we're positively responsible to help preserve the lives of others. We must take care to preserve human life. So even as you go forward into uh, the rest of the 
the law of Moses. You'll see that in Deuteronomy, there's all sorts of laws about sort of how you take care of your stuff to make sure no one else gets hurt. So put a, put a fence up on your roof because if someone goes sort of up there in the dark to, to cool off, they might fall off if you don't have a roof. If you have an ox that's in danger, you need to tie it up so that it doesn't go and kill other people. Uh, we need to positively work to protect life. I think we see this reflected in the famous parable that Jesus told of the Good Samaritan. Jesus tells this story to illustrate a point in Luke uh, chapter 10, starting in verse 30. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. So the men who committed this crime, the robbers in Jesus' story, are clearly in violation of the Sixth Commandment. They left this innocent traveler on the the road, left for dead. If the robbers were guilty of violating the Sixth Commandment, they didn't actually kill him, but they came close enough, so also were the men who passed him by, right? Those people who saw that he needed help, that his life was hanging by a thread but did nothing to help him. Right, the priest and the Levite in Jesus' story, they didn't actually touch this dying man. They didn't lay a hand on him, but they had the exact same disregard for human life that the robbers did. Right, they cared less about this man's life than their own personal agenda. Only the Samaritan who intervened to, to preserve the life of this man really kept God's law. He's the one who kept the sixth commandment by, by loving his neighbor. So sometimes the only thing you need to do in order to break the sixth commandment is to do nothing at all. So Martin Luther said, this commandment is violated not only when a person actually does evil, but also when he fails to do good to his neighbor or, though he has the opportunity, fails to prevent, protect, and save him from suffering bodily harm or injury. If you send a person away naked when you could clothe him, you have let him freeze to death. If you see anyone suffer hunger and do not feed him, you have let him starve. Likewise, if you see anyone condemned to death or in similar peril and do not save him, although you know a way and means to do so, you have killed him. It will do no good to plead that you did not contribute to his death by word or deed, for you have withheld your love from him and robbed him of the service by which his life might have been saved. Friends, those are chilling words for us because we live in a culture of death. Right? The news is full of reports of murder, abortion, mass shootings, assisted suicide, war crimes, genocide. It's tempting for us to conclude that because we can't do everything, uh, we might as well do nothing. But the Sixth Commandment reminds us that as God's people, we're called to do what we can. We can help to preserve life in our community and around the world. We can volunteer 
And we can support Mosaic Virginia. I know many of you do. Uh, in their work to help pregnant women to choose life for their child. Uh, we can pray earnestly for peace in Ukraine. Those of us involved in the work of government can work to make laws that protect and promote justice and life. We can provide food and clothing and support uh, for the neediest people in our community. That's part of the goal of the I-55 ministry in the community center that meets here on Saturday. So thank you to all of you who participate so faithfully, who are helping to make this church a place where human life is cared for and valued and nourished. And then in light of the parable of the Good Samaritan, we can keep our eyes open. That Samaritan didn't wake up that morning expecting to save a life, but what he did have was love for his neighbor. What he did have was was a value that he placed on human life. He had a disposition towards mercy. And so when the opportunity presented itself, he was ready to keep the sixth commandment. He was ready to show love and protect life. Jesus' words there in verse 37 of that parable uh, are, are meant for us as well. He says, go and do likewise. Go, be like that good Samaritan. Our God loves human life. Right? That's why he provides for our needs, giving us things we require like food and shelter. As Scott read from Matthew chapter 5 earlier, Jesus points out there that, that God provides rain, right? the, the, the rain that waters the crops, that provides food, not just on the good people, but on, he says, the unjust as well. God loves human life, and so he provides. God loves human life. That's why he told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, to make more people. That's why God has been blessing the world with more people since the beginning. The sixth commandment invites us as God's people to get on board with the heart of God and to love and to cherish human life. It requires us to love our neighbor and to seek to protect his or her life. And that brings us then to the third thing for us to see this morning, and that is what the Lord Jesus taught about this commandment. Uh, what we'll see is that keeping the Sixth Commandment turns out to be harder than we thought. So in the Sermon on the Mount, again, the passage that Scott read for us earlier, uh, Jesus recalibrates our understanding of what it means to commit murder. He says there in Matthew 5, 21, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. That's our passage for this morning. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. That's sort of a, uh, a, a gloss on that command that you get in the book of Deuteronomy. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. See, if all God cares about is whether or not we kill someone wrongly, then this commandment might be one that we can sort of let ourselves off the hook. But for Jesus to kill someone with a gun or to assassinate their character through angry words, it's all wrapped up in the same spiritual disease. So obviously there's a difference between uh, shooting someone in the head and slandering them. But Jesus is pointing out here that both actions are rooted, are rooted in the same attitude, in an attitude that is unacceptable in God's eyes. The Pharisees in Jesus' day were content with the letter of the law. If you ask them, have you violated the sixth commandment, they'd have said, no, I haven't killed anyone. Right? It doesn't matter if I've murdered someone in my heart, as long as I don't lay a finger on them, I'm fine. 
But Jesus points out here that sinful rage an anger that wants the other person out of the way, a, a bitterness of spirit, a, self, a selfish lust for your own way at the expense of another person's well-being, it's all connected to this idea of murder. Listen to how James reflects on this idea, writing to Christians. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You see, James is pointing out what Jesus taught us, that strife and quarreling come from the same place that murder comes from. We want, we lust, we covet, we don't get what we want, and so we become angry. And so whoever and whatever stands in our way has to be removed. If we can get what we want with less than murder, great. Maybe a harsh word, maybe an insult, maybe just calling this person fool. But if we want it bad enough, and if we have to kill to get it, then we might just do it. And so rightly does the Heidelberg Catechism teach us this. By forbidding murder, God teaches us that he hates the root of murder. Envy, hatred, anger, vindictiveness. In God's sight, all such are disguised forms of murder. So brothers and sisters, this commandment challenges us in our anger, in the ways that we hold hatred towards someone in our hearts, in all the ways we take private joy in someone's misfortune, in all the ways that we're tempted to hold grudges, to make people pay when they cross us. In that sense, we are all murderers. Even if you think of yourself as a good person, even if you pay your bills and don't kick puppies, if you take Jesus' word seriously, you are not a good person. If I listen to what Jesus says, then I have to admit that I'm a murderer. So friend, if you think that you're all right with God based on your good conduct, based on the fact that you're a decent person, then you're in actually really big trouble. Just let that sink in for a moment. Right? This, is, this isn't my opinion. This is what God himself is telling you in his word. If you've ever been angry wrongfully at someone, oh, the, same, the same seeds that lead to murder are growing in your heart. The Bible is clear that God's kingdom is not open to people like you and me, people with murder growing in our hearts. We deserve to be punished by God for our violation of his law. And that brings us then to the fourth and final thing I want us to see today, and that, that is I want to step back and see the bigger picture. Because this command that we read in Exodus 20, verse 13, this command not to murder, it is, I think, resting on a foundation that is incredibly countercultural. And so I think it's really important for us, living in Northern Virginia in 2022, to draw out and make explicit some ideas that we might take for granted and so risk losing. So as we conclude, I just want to take an idea that's maybe been humming in the background and, and bring it out to the forefront. And, and that foundational idea is that, is that God forbids murder because human life has a purpose. Human life has a value, and it has a meaning that's assigned to it by God. Human life 
has a purpose and a value and a meaning that is assigned to it by God. Can you see that's sort of the foundation on which the sixth commandment is, is resting? It's, what, it's, the, it's the idea that God, I think, assumes his people understand and that leads him to tell us not to kill each other. The book of Genesis tells us that every human being is made in God's image, is made for a purpose. And that purpose is, is, is bound up with being the image of God. Your purpose is to reflect, to, to image, if I can make that a verb, to, to reflect the character of God, to bring glory to him by being like him. You're meant to be wise and holy and creative and loving. And in so, you reflect the character of the God who made you in his image. That's what your life is meant to be. That's true life. But sin, rebellion against God and against his commands, sin is at its root anti-life. Sin tells me that my life actually belongs to me, that it's whatever I want to say that it is, that I'm the one who, who determines and establishes the meaning of my life, that my life has been given to me for me. And so what we see all through the Bible and what you see it in your own personal experience, if you think for just a moment, is that sin is corrosive. It corrodes life. It effaces life. It, it mars and distorts the image of God in us. And so it's no surprise that what we see in the Bible is that the first and primary consequence of sin is death. We die because we sin. Death is the inevitable outcome of sin. It is the terminal stop on that rail line. Sin is an express train directly to death. And friends, that's been Satan's plan all along. If what we see in the sixth commandment is that God loves human life, well, what we see in the character of Satan is that he is, to use Jesus' words from John 8:44 a murderer from the beginning. Satan hates God and hates what God loves. And so his plan was to incite Adam and Eve to sin. And it was aimed directly at destroying them, disqualifying them from life in God's presence. And if it were possible, robbing God of his glory. But God had an even greater plan. In that he sent his son, the Lord Jesus, to take on human flesh to, to save us from sin and from death, to, to deliver us from the delusion that we were meant to live our lives for ourselves. Jesus came to restore us to the life that we were created to live, reflecting joyfully the image of God. Jesus was perfect in every way. He was the perfect image of the invisible God. He was never sinfully angry. He never murdered in his heart. He always worked to preserve life in every situation. Have you ever noticed how many healings Jesus performed? How many desperately sick people he brought back from the brink of death? He, he even brought people who were dead back as a sign of what he had come to do, a, a picture of his power and his mission. So we read in John 5 that God the Father granted for Jesus to have life in himself. In John 11, Jesus told a friend, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. 
In the Apostle John's first letter, he said, And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Jesus is the perfect embodiment of life. But he gave that life up on the cross in order to save us from all the ways that we've broken God's commandments. All of the ways that we've murdered, raged, and failed to care for those in our path. Friends, the true life tasted death for murderers and would-be murderers like you and me. On the cross, Jesus took the punishment. He took the wrath. He took the hell. He took the death that we deserve. He died for his people. But the good news is he didn't stay in the tomb. The grave could not keep hold of him. The king of life burst forth in victory over sin and death, rising from the dead. And now he offers life, true life, eternal life to anyone who would turn from their sin and trust in him. Jesus offers you life today, a life restored to its original purpose, bringing glory to your creator and eternal life with God in heaven. So speaking of his people in John 10, Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Friend, if you're not a follower of Jesus, then you have a life and death decision before you this morning. You've been given life by God for a purpose It's not for you to to squander or to waste or to invest on yourself. You were made, formed in your mother's womb. God breathed life into you so that you might find your greatest purpose and meaning and joy in reflecting his image, in being like him, in glorifying him with your life. And so today the Lord Jesus, crucified and risen from the dead, calls you, calls you to come and find forgiveness and mercy and life through faith in him. Friend, if you're not a follower of Jesus, don't persist on your path to eternal spiritual death. Don't be the murderer of your own soul. But put your faith in Jesus today and live. And for those of us who are Christians, perhaps the the question that we need to ask ourselves in light of the sixth commandment is, are, are we living a life worthy of our calling in Christ. The sixth commandment reminds us that human life is precious, that it is to be preserved and guarded, that it is given to us by God for his glory. And so while there is a place for relaxation and vacation, there's a place for watching a ball game and enjoying a movie, but the good news is we've been called to so much more than simply wasting time. We've been called to so much more than than putting time to death with with meaningless distractions. If you're in Christ, you've you've been given a purpose and a life. And you don't have to sit around waiting for death to come. You're not here simply to amuse yourself to the grave. Christian, we're blessed in that we've not been left to, to guess why we're here or what it is that we're supposed to do. We're not wandering around in the dark trying to guess what this life is for. God has told us we bear his image and we live for his glory. And so our lives are meant to be spent in worship, in service to the Lord, 
in loving his people, in delighting in all the things that he's made, in using the gifts that he's given us to reflect his character, in praising his name. Brothers and sisters, that's a vision of life that is abundant, that is real life. That's the kind of life you're going to live perfectly in eternity. And so as we come to the table now, we come to the one who is himself life. We come to remember that he died to make it possible for us to live, for us to have abundant life now and eternal life with him in a world made new. And so let's come to the table now to celebrate the life that we have in the death of Christ. First, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you glory and praise as the author of life. How, how fearfully and wonderfully are we made? We see your creativity, your, your genius, your beauty, your love in all that you've made and especially in your creation of human beings. Now we thank you, Father, that you have made us, that you have watched over us. We thank you for sending your Son, the Lord Jesus, so that we might have abundant life. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be at work in our midst as individuals and as a church family, that we would reflect the glory of Christ, that we would live life well, that we would be a place where life is cherished and delighted in. And we ask all these things in Christ's name for his glory. Amen.